Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, we're in the midst of a four-part mini-series. If you are interested in the way that work is changing and reinventing and really being sort of upended by the events of 2020, then we're trying to make sense of them here. And we're in the midst of a four-part series, largely which is trying to understand what will work look like, what will work culture look like if some of us are working from home two days a week, three days a week, or in the next 12 months, maybe five days a week. So um, trying to make sense of that. And one of the things that I've been most inspired by is hearing some of the, the expertise on it. Last week, we had Sarah Drinkwater and Sarah Drinkwater's philosophy was very resolutely that companies will start hiring community managers and community leaders, people whose responsible, responsibility is to build these sort of affinities, these identities, these connections between people. Maybe when it's not as easy as as uh, getting some cake and put it on a, a table in the middle of desks. So trying to be really intentional about the way we build culture. Anyway, one of the things that Sarah did along the way last week is she said uh, that I should speak to Abadesi Osansade. And Abadesi works at Brandwatch. They're a, a SaaS platform. They just hired Abadesi as their VP for Global Community and Belonging. So I wanted to understand what that looked like, how you would set about trying to build community amongst a a group like that. The discussion is really fabulous and and wide ranging. We talk about diversity and inclusion. We talk about um, some, you know, explosive episodes that have happened in other businesses recently. We talk about what anyone could do coming into a job like community manager to try and build some sort of connection between individuals. And along the way, Abadesi gives loads of really good examples of what other firms are doing. There's a really interesting example from the payments company Square, and I've put that example in the show notes. So hopefully you're going to get a lot from this. Like I say, it's the second of four episodes, understanding community and understanding how we can feel more connected to each other. If you are obsessed with work culture, if you are obsessed with trying to make your workplace a better place to be, then I think in aggregate, these four episodes are going to be a really helpful uh, addition to your own expertise. 
As ever, if you are interested in this stuff, there is a newsletter and you can get that on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. It's going to thousands of people. We added about another 280 people last week. So it's a big sort of word of mouth hit, I think, with people who are trying to wrestle with how they can build their own workplace culture. Here's my discussion with Abadesi Asensadi. Abadesi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Sarah Drinkwater on uh, last week's episode was talking about if anyone wants to understand where work's going, they should look at what you're doing and look at your role. So <laughs> who wow. better to discuss your role and, where's, uh, and where you're going than you? Amazing. So, uh, so thank you for joining us. To kick off, do you just want to ex- sort of say who you are and, w- and where you work? Yeah, totally. So um, yeah, very grateful to be here and so cool to be connected again. Uh, I know we're both really passionate about how work is going to change. And I feel fortunate to have been recommended by Sarah Drinkwater as well, because she's definitely uh, someone I admire in the industry. My current role, the one that she's referring to is I recently joined Brandwatch. Um, you know, we're a big SaaS company focused on consumer digital intelligence as their first ever VP of global community and belonging. This is a newly created role <laughs> that uh, really has sort of like, in some ways, been in the pipeline for maybe close to two years, but really the catalyst for actually creating this role came over the events of Black Lives Matter going on whilst in the pandemic pandemic whilst this company, you know, 500 employees across a number of global offices was transitioning to a remote optimized culture and just feeling a real need to address how to always make equitable decisions across every part of the organization that ensure that each person within this global community could have all they need to excel in their role, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their life situation is, what their lived experience is. Um, Yeah. And this is basically how I've ended up in my job. (laughs) So this is an important qualification to start. So when Sarah talks about community, she sort of talks about almost uh, community unbounded, that it's community of your customers, it's community of your employees, communities. It's a series of different communities that that sometimes overlap. But your role specifically is to build a community amongst Brandwatch's 500 employees. Is that right? Well, my role will also overlap into the relationship we have with our clients. This is something that I work closely with comms with too. Um, It's something that's very much like in a state of flux right now because we are we have the word community to cross over to two things. Community right now means the people that engage with our products and use our products, but it also means the people that build our products. And right, right. now I'm trying to think of how do we unite <laughs> these these uh, two groups um, under the same set of values and and basically like a shared vision for what Brandwatch means to them and how they can make the most of it. So, so when you're sitting down and you're thinking about that job, yes. how do you start? Let's think about the internal. Yes. <laughs> you, you got, so, so describe the situation. Is, is this distributed across many different countries and many different cities or is it more manageable? How, how would it look? Yeah, I think one of the most challenging things that happens to folks like myself who come into newly created roles or who come into roles like community, which let's face it, at, you know, the worst of times can feel a bit nebulous, um, yeah. is that you are tasked with both defining your role uh, and and 
also like creating impact at the same time. And it's really difficult, Mm. I think, to do the two whilst you are new to an organization, especially an organization that's quite large. So I think for me, what this role actually looks like is, you know, I'm reporting now month, well, month two, week 10 into this role. Um, The first part of it was definitely just to be a sponge and speak to as many different people as possible. I mean, I think by my third week, I'd already had over 45 one-to-ones with everything from all the VPs to all members of the exec team, but people who'd been tenured with the company the longest amount of time, people who were super new, people from different ERGs, um, really just to understand what they wanted out of this role. Like when it comes to the community, what do you feel is lacking? And when it comes to your individual sense of belonging, where do you think we need to improve? So that was really like the first step. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, in my most cynical moments, I'm very mindful of the fact that because the role is so big and all encompassing, it could be very easy for one to fail. And I think that's why it's really important for whoever takes on this type of role to basically be like laser focused in what they decide to prioritize Mm. because it can be super easy to basically be pulled in a bunch of different directions. So just to give you an example of some of the themes that came up in my work, um, our machine learning uh, engineers, data scientists, you know, being a software product, we've been thinking a lot about ethics. We've been thinking not only about the fact that there's bias in the language of the code that we use, but also just by the fact that we are a company that is, you know, parsing through data that is created by people's searches and social media content online, depending on what search terms you put in, it could be you are presented with disproportionately negative results just by virtue of biases that exist in society. And we don't want to perpetuate that. So this is one of the things that I am playing a role in helping, helping us think about how we divert resources to that, how we prioritize that work, how we make that better. Um, That's something that of course, will benefit our customers and our clients, but it's actually driven by people in our community, our internal community, who want to feel proud of the product they're building and want to feel like this product aligns with their values. There are a lot of people in the organization that want to know what we are going to do to support them as parents, as people in marginalized communities, as we transition to remote optimization. Um, They want to know what support they're going to have so that they can stay as productive as possible from home. Many of them are dealing with increased responsibilities in their personal life, whether that's childcare, whether that's schooling, whether that's um, folks impacted by COVID-19 itself. So um, it's, it's incredibly challenging because you're, you're basically responding to a group of people who have divergent needs and you're trying to identify a cohesive theme. And then you're trying to basically present some kind of easy to grasp narrative to the executive team and to the board so that you can push for the resources that you need to basically execute your roadmap. So I'm at this stage now where I've created a roadmap and now I'm thinking this is the budget that I need to make all of this happen. These are the people I need. These are the resources that I need. I've tried my very best to narrow the expectations to where I feel we will make the most impact based on what I've heard from the company. And I think that's all I can do really. Like we know that a year goes by very quickly. You can't move the needle on everything. So you have to pick the things that as you're looking at all the different competing needs, you have to pick those things which you feel will align most with what you've been hearing and what you've picked out as the most common, most urgent needs. But I I honestly feel that it will never be perfect. You mentioned ERGs there, employee resource groups. Do you want to talk a little bit about the importance that you've perceived of of ERGs? Do do you think 
do you think ERGs are something that, because there's still a lot of companies that don't have resource groups. Yes. And, you know, th- these are groups for different identity groups, effectively. Of course. Do you want to talk to the importance of them and, and whether you think that's growing or whether it's staying the same? Yeah, I definitely think they're growing. And I'll start with the value of them and, and why they exist. There's an incredible amount of research that shows we need to be our authentic selves at work to be productive and to thrive. And thinking about this in the context of the pandemic and remote working, there's some even more really interesting research coming out of Life Lab Learning. This was actually reported in First Round Review a couple of months ago that says that there's a part of our brain that actually benefits from moving to a different location as we take on a different part of our identity. So for example, I am, let's say, a wife at home, and then I go to work and I'm an executive at work and I do my executive duties there. And now that we're all working from home, we don't have the benefit of of shifting physically as we shift our mindsets. And this is actually creating increased mental health challenges for all of us. That's why we feel really stressed and we feel really anxious. And the solution to this, based on what the research tells us, is that we should just remove the barrier between our professional and our personal self, i.e. we should be who we are at home, where we are at work, Mm -hmm. and that should be okay. Now, the challenge that that presents is when you look like the CEO and you act like the CEO, or when you look like your boss and you act like your boss, it's very easy for you to be your authentic self. And the research shows you're unlikely to pay a penalty for being your authentic self. But the further away you are from that identity, from that dominant group, the more bias and prejudice you face, whether that's the likability penalty where you're labeled as aggressive instead of assertive just for you know expressing your views that research shows happens more to women and women of color uh, a challenge is created for you that you uniquely face and this is where ERGs come in we know that no one wants to be alone no one wants to feel isolated no one wants to feel like they they can't be their true selves like they have to dilute their identity but unfortunately that is the reality for many people whether you're a woman a black person a person of color a disabled person someone who's neurodivergent a member of the queer community the only parent in your team whatever it might be all of us have some element of our lived experience that makes us feel different. And this is where ERG groups come in because suddenly you go from being the outsider, the person who no one in your team can really relate to or resonate with, to being in a trusted, safe space with people, with people who just get you. And I think mm. we we really undervalue the power that can have. And I'm speaking as someone that has always been a part of ERG groups throughout my 10 years in tech and has even started them in other companies that didn't have them. There is an extra burden on us, in addition to being a product designer, in addition to being a front-end developer, whatever it might be, there's an additional burden on us just navigating the world, right? Something's happened in the news today and I still need to show up and and, and be myself and, and do great things. But maybe no one's asking me about that. Like no one's asking me how I'm affected by this news that's devastated my community, impacted my community. And that's where the ERG group comes in. It makes me feel seen and heard and it creates a could, space where I can be me. And could you lift the lid for so, so what would we expect to find in an ERG meeting? If, if someone yeah. set up a gay group or a black group or a disabled group, if they, they've created these groups, what would what would they expect? Because I guess from mm. the, the sad thing is the incumbent people who don't go to those groups probably 
maybe a sort of unnecessarily suspicious of them. What what sort of thing would go on there? Yeah. So, for example, at a parents' ERG meeting, there would be conversations about how challenging it is right now to try and stay on a Zoom conference or, or do a meeting mm. while you're entertaining your toddlers in the background. You know, how do you keep them entertained or like out of the room while you're trying to keep people focused? Things that you know only other parents will empathize with and relate to. And similarly, if it were, let's say, diversity and inclusion committee meeting, we might be talking about something that's recently happened in the news. So, for example, you know, if you think of the events of the end of May with the tragic murder of George Floyd in America, Breonna Taylor, that would be a really safe space where you could actually engage in the conversation and say to people, you know, how does it make you feel knowing that if you're stopped by the police while black, you're more likely to be murdered by people whose tax dollars Mm. you have paid to protect you. So it's just a place to be able to express how you feel and, and also also offer solutions like, hey, for example, you know, we've got an election coming up in the US. Many people in the tech industry work on that in that country. People are thinking about what support can we give on election day to make sure that people have time to get out and vote. Like, yes, some people are going to do a mail vote or an absentee ballot, but some people are going to go out, go to the polling station. So, you know, that could be the type of solution that's actually offered up from an ERG perspective because it's the type of thing relating to your community that doesn't necessarily like come out of your business goals or objectives but absolutely affects the people who you need to get your business goals and objectives and and does it act to give these these groups a voice so does the the very nature of having an erg mean to some extent they can represent themselves more collectively absolutely if i think of the groups at brandwatch for example they're in many ways, they're almost like a focus group because they have perspective on issues relating to culture and individuals' experience that members of the executive team won't see and won't hear, but absolutely should know about. Do you think to some extent that these associations sort of form the place of unions? Or I guess I guess we're just trying to give representation to to divergent voices, aren't we? I think unions have like a very specific function, and I think unions also have far more actual, real, material power than ERG groups. And I would be very reluctant to use the two words in the same sentence because if there are people right. who are listening who are reluctant to support the setting up of ERG groups because they're worried that it creates a closed space that they don't have access to, or they're worried about any maybe negative uh, commercial impact, then like, you know, please, please, please don't think that folks are now going to be huddling together in little rooms trying to make demands that could compromise your bottom line. That's absolutely not the case. There's never been Mm -hmm. any ulterior motive in any ERG groups I've been a part of. Rather, it's been really a place that drives retention, right? Like often an ERG group is is a place where someone might raise an issue they don't feel safe raising with their manager, an issue that if not addressed could cause them to leave. And with the support of their peers and with the support of allies and people they trust, this issue can be resolved. And if this issue is symptomatic of you know, a policy that isn't in place that should be, or an initiative that isn't in place that should be, whether that's mental health support, whether that's anything really, there's actually an opportunity for people policy to be improved based on that. I guess to a large extent, an organisation needs to be aligned with these ERGs forming and being willing to 
to listen to the output of them. It's, it, there's no point in having ERGs, whether self-organizing or company sanctioned, if the opinions that come out of them are just ignored, pushed away. There's got to be a degree of hard influence there. Yeah, I agree. I think there has to be a perception that ERGs are in many ways a bit like a lab and they are effectively running little experiments for you. Let's say your goal or your hypothesis is we can make this company more equal or more equitable. And one of the experiments you want to test that is to make this company more equitable, we can create a safe space for people from underrepresented groups to share their experiences and surface solutions. Then every time that group surfaces a solution, it falls on you to actually put that into action, right? And, and test your hypothesis. Is, is this solution going to make our company more equitable and more representative? And I think there's some extremely powerful case studies in the industry right now that we can turn to where we have seen this work effectively. So whether that's the fact that Intel leaning into insight from uh, the women's ERG uh, decided to launch diversity panels. So they were like, okay, if anytime there's a panel interview, let's make sure there are women on that panel because what we're hearing from our women employees is it can be extremely intimidating to go through an entire recruitment process and only ever see a man. In fact, it could be off-putting because you're like, I don't want to be the only woman on this team. So as soon as they made that change, boom, representation of women at all levels shot up. And I think, you know, Jack Dorsey's company Square, again, have been like, okay, we're hearing that people um, are almost completely incapable of removing bias from every decision-making process, especially throughout recruitment. So we need to do something to ensure that we are over-indexing for diverse representation in offer stage. We need to make sure that we are really, really getting people through the pipeline and getting them to offer stage. So they've been running a program called RISE. There's an amazing case study on their website about it right now. And that was a simple mandate Let's make sure that every final round for an open role has at least one candidate from an underrepresented minority background. And as a result of this, they have been able to find some of the best top talent that just also happen to be minorities. I think ERG groups can totally help you, you know, gain that competitive advantage and and be a more representative and equitable org. If you're in a company and unfortunately the leaders of the company don't buy into this and mm-hmm. and aren't swayed by this. Yeah. Do you think this scope to be self-organizing as the ERG? Do you think you need the company's approval to do it? It's a really interesting time to ask that. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Coinbase and the CEO's recent statements mm. urging employees to leave activism at home and, and offering severance to those who are not happy to do that. Um, And Facebook this week told uh, employees to take any uh, political affiliation off their internal version of Facebook workplace. Interesting. Yeah. So I I feel very sad about these developments in our industry because, you know, I am a member of a number of oppressed groups. I'm a woman in patriarchy. I'm a black and Asian woman in white supremacy. I don't really get a choice when I am walking through the world. I don't get to turn off my color and turn off my gender and avoid facing bias and prejudice. It's there for all to see. And these actions make me feel like there's a real lack of understanding about the the power of privilege and and also an unwillingness to do better because 
you know, these, these decisions to me, are basically money matters more than your humanity. That's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly frustrating. So back to your question, you know, should ERGs self-organize? Look, I just feel like that is a decision that every individual needs to take on their own because capitalism mm-hmm. is a system where we need money to, to survive and we need jobs to make money. And I think as much as I'd love to say yeah, go out there and unionize. I'm reminded of the fact that just a few months ago, Amazon fired an employee Mm. who tried to do this. And, you know, we got bills to pay out here. So um, I feel like that is something that I... I don't necessarily feel comfortable like having like a principle on right now because I just feel Mm. that it's something that every individual needs to make their own decision about, you know, based on the risk that they're willing to take. Like if the world wasn't so messed up, we wouldn't even have to be having this conversation, but like things are heading in an extremely ugly direction right now. And I think sometimes it's even hard for me to separate my perspectives as a thought leader from my experiences as a woman of color. Absolutely. Just listening to it. I think we've been, I'll speak for me because I recognize that you've got an important job at an exciting place. It's illustrative how much our thinking about unions has been just affected by a narrative that tells us we mustn't unionize and it's really bad to unionize. And it's just, it's really interesting. The moment that the, the word comes out of our mouth, we, we sort of wince from it. Whereas effectively, it seems to me that, you know, in, in my taking, unionization seems to be a, a reasonable conclusion based on the attempt to get a voice. Anyway, I'll sort of, I'll move on. I agree. No, no, no. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you on this. And I think there's like a lot of really interesting startups navigating this space. Um, and I, I, I think you're right. Like one of the things I realize more and more as each day goes on is that stories matter more than data. Um, and I think that there is like a lot more, compelling stories about what it is to be a union, which unfortunately have negative connotations, um, Mm. which actually like distract us from the data that shows like the overall value, not even just to individuals, but I think to society and and wider communities as a whole. Um, One of the companies that maybe if folks are interested, they should check out is, is a company called Organize, um, which has two female founders, but they're basically doing the work of helping employees you know, literally self-organize and campaign anonymously for fairer treatment at work. And I think it's really important because, you know, here at Brandwatch, for example, we are making an absolute priority to optimize for remote working and we are pouring the resources into it and we've got multiple task forces and we're keeping the conversations open. But I know that we're in a fortunate position to be able to do that. And, you know, we've just taken the stance that that matters. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there whose companies are still very much putting them in limbo or making them feel like they're in limbo. And the reality is, at least from where I'm standing, I feel like 2021 is going to be a lot like 2020. Um, mm. So, you know, if folks are still feeling incredible levels of uncertainty about how to continue working from home and, you know, basically get the resources they need to do that effectively, you're right. You know, why not start talking to people in your company and, and asking for that? And, and really, whatever else you feel you need, you know, November is going to be super interesting when the results of the U.S. election come out. And again, maybe it will be time for people to organize and, and you know, fight for fair treatment. I think it's a basic human right to not have to suffer, especially if someone is making money out of your time. It's such a fascinating thing. To some extent, we've been sort of polluted against the word union. But the the moment you say, do you believe people at work should have a voice? 
it's almost unarguable. Yeah. And, you know, so whether whether it's you know the resource groups or whether it's just every employee. So like it's just a really strange thing that we've permitted the the narrative to be that no, we we went from wanting to be part of a union. Anyway, it's fascinating for me. Tell me, a lot of people will be so intrigued about your role as community leader. Does it extend beyond resource groups and giving uh, different identity groups a sense of belonging? Or how do you create a sense of belonging in community among the wider audience? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I've literally just finished a panel at um, the next web conference where we were, again, like talking about this. How how do you do that? Um, it's such a big question. And I think we all have to remember, like, we are all individuals that form a part of a company's unique culture. And I think no two companies are the same. And we have to be really mindful of the fact that while on the commercial side, we were probably all trying to grow revenue and grow profits and, and gain new customers, the success metrics for work around community and belonging are not necessarily going to be as consistent across every organization. And it's really, really important for companies, leadership in particular, to think long and hard about what they want their success metrics to be. And the reason that I say that is because I've, I've come up with this little analogy, which uh, I'll share again here, which I think could be really valuable. When companies are thinking about belonging and thinking about what that looks like for them and what that means for them and where they aspire to be, right? So they might look at companies like Airbnb, where, you know, Brian Chesky, the CEO, made himself the head of community after it came out that Airbnb hosts were canceling reservations when they found out that the guests were black or gay or Muslim or whatever it might be. They're looking at companies like that and then they're extrapolating from that. And what they're aspiring to be is effectively an Olympic gold athlete level of belonging. That's what most companies are aiming for. And that's what's in their dialogue. And that's what they're discussing. And even perhaps that's what they're visualizing in their imagination. Mm. The reality is where they're at at present, back to the athlete analogy, is like they're like a couch potato that can barely do one sit up or push up, let alone run a mile, you know. And this is the thing. Each organization now has to decide what that metric of success look like. For too long, I think we focused only on hiring and representation. And the fact is most of us aren't even hiring. Hiring is flat because it's a pandemic and we're not sure what's going to happen. So we're in a very risk averse mode when it comes to spending money and headcount is, uh, is money. Um, so instead you might say, how comfortable do we even feel talking about the issues relating to belonging, right? So in May and June of this year, racism was top of the agenda. Then it moved on to trans rights. Now we're thinking about so many other things, neurodiversity, disability. How comfortable do you feel discussing these topics? And if you feel very uncomfortable, maybe your metric of success should be, let's get more comfortable discussing these things. Or you could focus on bias and you could be like, how confident do we feel we are challenging bias in every decision we make and every word we say? Or do we need a better education on bias? Do we need to invest in rigorous, consistent training around bias so that we can understand it and challenge it better? I think every person's version of belonging is going to be different and it's going to evolve over time. And that's how you get from couch potato to Olympic gold medal athlete. And it's important to remember that this is like a, a, a timeline that 
probably feels excruciatingly long compared to other objectives that are in your business. Over the course of a quarter, you might see a line go up. Over the course of a financial year, you might see a line go up. Over like a five, even 10-year trajectory, you might feel really confident about the direction your your share price is moving in or your lifetime value of a customer, any of those things. But when it comes to equality, we just don't have hundreds of years of data in capitalism about the best framework for building an equitable org, the best tools for building representative org. We're literally baby steps, baby stages of that. So that means that whatever success metrics you choose, you then have to be willing to commit to a long-term scope of work because it's going to be a really, really long time for you to change the culture if you're committed to changing the culture. And I think if you're not interested in doing it, you honestly shouldn't bother because performative work is probably more harmful than not doing anything because then you are going to face churn from the people who, you know, bought into your false promises and your brand perception is going to be super damaged. So much of our sense of belonging was almost this analog sense of being around people and smiling at them and being in a room with them and applauding with them. And and now we've had that stripped from us. Have you witnessed anything that you've been really inspired by that organizations have achieved small moments of togetherness? Absolutely. Despite this, this forced separation. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's incredible. Um, just how much of our work identity that isn't our role has been stripped away from us to your point. You know, mm. now we're kind of like down to the basic transactions and we don't have those water cooler moments. We don't go out for lunch. It hurts. Um, so I think it's really cool to see like some of the fun things I've seen, like two specific examples come to mind. Uh, the office managers at Brandwatch did this incredible thing where, you know, we all signed up to like this Strava group. We had a Slack channel made. We had a little weekend 5k challenge and you could walk it, you could run it, you could bike it, you could split it with friends. And we were all on the app, um, just sharing our progress and tagging photos and, and having a fun time. And I thought that was, that was really fun. Another thing that I thought was really cool while it was still digital, it was kind of a different way to interact. So this was a community called creative mornings. They've got chapters in London and really all over the world. And we all jumped down for a creative morning, except this time it was virtual, the first virtual event. And we all had our cameras on and the host just asked a series of questions. And it was little things like if you're a morning person, keep your camera on. If you're not turn it off. And, it was like, oh, if you're going out this weekend, keep your camera on. If not, keep it off. And it was just like a fun way to like play around with the mm. fact that we were all still on Zoom. I would love to hear other examples of how people are are bringing folks together or how people are connecting. I know there are a few companies that have wherever social bubbles are allowed, let people meet up. And certainly while that was still okay here in the UK and in other regions, you know, we opened up budget for folks to just go and like have a meal, go to, you know, whatever, a cafe, a pub, anything, Mm. like go hang out, the bill's on us, send us a photo because there is no replacement for in real life. You know, we've literally spent millions of years hanging out in real life, our, 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 our digital life as a species is extremely short. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's work in progress and I'm definitely still looking out for like really good examples. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it strikes me through all of this that, you know, the, the experience that we've got being in companies and being in the professional world is that 
we all like to keep our secrets close to our chest. And, and it struck, really struck me when you gave that example of Square. I'm going to dig out that example from their website and put it in the show notes. But <laughs> cool. it, it just struck me that the, the success of this isn't individual. It shouldn't be seen as a competitive advantage between different firms. It's just, it, it feels like it's, it's too important for that. It's, it's about sharing something as, as a collective and sharing it as a moment. And similarly, you know, I, I'm always intrigued when I hear different companies trying to solve this problem. And look, you know, what you end up with is you end up with a strong reminder that face-to-face still has this magical and irreplaceable power to it. But there's a lot of ways that we can at least try to connect a degree of humanity, even if we know it's, you know, it's it's an artificial Christmas tree rather than a real one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I really like your point around the fact that, like, let's not hide uh, the secrets. And I think it's like a super interesting time to be involved in anything from office management, community, people ops, people, and then really just across the board, anyone that is like, you know, has some kind of team leadership element or, or any, or anyone under their care in, in their corporate world. Um, there is no value in keeping cards close to our chest because ultimately we, we need to feel human and we need to feel connected and we need to feel alive in order to succeed in our roles. And that doesn't disadvantage my competitor in any way. If I talk about how I do it. Um, so yeah, I think that's really great. And I, I know I personally have been having amazing and super interesting conversations with tons of different folks who I would call peers or, or, you know, players of a similar level or in a similar field all across the industry, you know, chest open. Here's what we've got. What are you doing? Let's talk about it because it is just such, such a time of like change into like this new frontier where everything is up for grabs. You could literally take any approach no one's really going to tell you you're doing it wrong because we have no point of comparison. Um, it could be great. I mean, you know, to discover some parallel universe where we could experiment with this, but that doesn't exist yet. So yeah, like I, I totally like, let's all just see, like keep trying things, see what works and, and share the secrets. More from my discussion with Abadesi after this. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Now back to my discussion with Abadesios and Sadi. I'm going to ask you a question that I consider almost impossible, but everything else you've said is is so thoughtful that I would just love your take on this. Okay, cool. So in in February or March this year, the Guardian had this um, this really intense situation where a third of their employees wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper, Kath Viner, because of the um, the presence in the newspaper of a. Um, I guess a traditional feminist writer, but you, you might call her a trans-exclusionary f- radical feminist. But sh- she wrote in the newspaper and a third of the employees wrote saying that they felt unsafe by the presence of her in the organisation. Mm. And it just really struck me as um, just, you know, something that hasn't yet reached most organisations, but an indication of how fraught these issues are. And I think the, the reason why um, the a lot, a lot of people, a lot of traditionalists are, are anxious about um, identity becoming a bigger part of work is because they perceive it as so immensely complex and that it's fraught with issues that they're scared yes. to say the wrong word on. And what what's your take on that issue? I, I know it's sort of an immensely difficult yeah, one. Yeah, no. Do, do, do you have a perspective on that? I do, yeah. I actually think about this a lot. And I've been in like a number of like heated debates with, with friends about this, definitely specifically about, you know, transphobia. It's been in the headlines a lot. I, I'm afraid to say I didn't see this Guardian debacle because I've been on a bit of a news diet for the last seven months. But, um, you know, with regard to JK Rowling's comments on social media and Mm. stuff like that, I've been pulled into this conversation quite a lot. And like, this is how I approach approach the conversation every time I'm pulled into it. I, I start with my privilege and I start with the fact that I have cisgender privilege. And because of the fact that I have cisgender privilege and I am part, therefore, of a dominant and, you know, quotation marks, normative group, it is going to be impossible for me to empathize with the experience of people, the trans community. I am an ally of the trans community. I do my best to, you know, explicitly share my pronouns wherever I can, because I want to normalize the behavior. I understand that as a result of my cisgender privilege, people uh, correctly guess my pronoun. And unfortunately that's not the case for many people, um, especially people who are non-binary. So I always, always, always start with my privilege. And I guess I try to find an analogy because I find the, the conversation like extremely complex and complicated and very emotionally heated. And I, I'm never quite sure how to understand it. Like one of the things that I fear is that when you don't know what it's like to be a member of a marginalized group, it's very easy for you to oversimplify their trauma and their suffering Mm. and oversimplify the fear that they have of their acceptance in society. And it's very easy to, not jump to the worst case scenario that they will often have in mind of like disproportionate abuse, hate, even violence they will face if they are never seen as equals in our world. Um, And I, I therefore then start to think of, you know, what was it like in other times in history when people who are now seen as members of a more normative or, or dominant group were not right. Whether that was women 
when it was all about men and everything, or whether that was black people when it was all about white people. I tried to think about what it was like then and what people said about those groups then and how people said, God, I could never imagine going to an office where a woman was there, or I could never imagine eating at a restaurant with a black family there. God, no. Um, I try to draw an analogy to that. And I think a lot of the times when people are challenging transphobia, what they're trying to say is, are we letting ourselves normalize another type of hate just because it's one that we don't understand, we don't see, or it's because it's the experience of someone that we just don't quite believe and we just don't quite empathize with. So that's sort of my perspective on it. Mm. Yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, like like you say, and, and sort of uh, and another sort of very thoughtful answer. And look, it's, it's incredibly difficult. I think it's really sad for me when you witness two groups who have been at the receiving end of injustices, arguing amongst themselves rather than you know women and uh, trans allies arguing amongst themselves rather than recognizing that they're both at the receiving end of historical injustice. So yeah, immensely complicated. It makes me immediately sort of cautious of, of everything I say, because always with sort of the, the best intent, don't want to say anything that anyone will be offended by. Abadesi, if, if anyone's interested in your work and, yes. and obviously you've, you've, you, you exist three dimensionally aside <laughs> from your job. So you've written stuff, you've got social media. Where would people find some of your stuff? Yeah. Thanks so much for letting me plug myself. Um, I'm on social <laughs> media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, everywhere, really medium at Abadesi. Um, I do have a book. It's aimed at women early in their career looking to break into tech. It's called Dream Big hustle hard and it's available on Amazon and Kindle. Um, and yeah, in addition to Brandwatch, by the way, we are hiring. So please reach out if you want to join. I am also the CEO of a social enterprise, Hustle Crew. Hustle Crew is on a mission to make tech more inclusive through talks and training. So if you're an underrepresented person looking to further your tech career, or you're a tech company looking to tap into an incredible community of underrepresented people or leverage our workshops so that you can understand bias and privilege better, please go to hustlecrew.co or follow us on social media at hustlecrewlive. Amazing. Sarah recommended that you would be an incredibly inspirational person to talk to and she was exactly right. Oh, so, I'm, so I'm absolutely <laughs> thrilled that you've been, been able to, to talk to us. Thank you so much. Thank you to Abadesi. That was uh, really fascinating to hear from someone who's sort of forging the plans to do these things. And I think, you know, it's pretty evident. She was very transparent there. She's just at the outset of trying to work out what you can accomplish in a job like this and what you should accomplish in a job like this. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to sort of hear her working out in public. If you have enjoyed this, please do share it. That's the best thing that you can do with a free podcast is sort of pass it on and share the knowledge with other people who might be interested in the same themes. I'm really grateful for your company. Next week, we've got another episode as part of this community feature. And I think you're going to love that one. I've been Bruce Taisley. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.